Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head over now to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is also hiring. I'm looking for a remote editorial assistant to start working later this summer. This role handles numerous editorial tasks from booking guests to proofreading to social media and deals with everything from the show itself to the show notes to the newsletter. If you love crypto and have journalism experience, get in touch. I also have a link to the job posting in the show notes and the listings also available on my website. And there it explains what you should send in and how. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today, starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. Diversify is the first self-custodial exchange that can match the leading centralized cryptocurrency platforms. No more sacrifices. You can enjoy high speeds, deep liquidity, privacy by default, and low fees directly from your private wallet. Today's guest is Kane Warwick, founder of Synthetics. Welcome, Kane. Hey, Laura. How's it going? This week, Compound distributed its governance token, which generated a lot of buzz. How did they do that? So, you know, they've been planning this for a while. And uh, essentially, they've set up a distribution where the people who use the protocol uh, get the tokens, right? So, um, you know, people who are lending and borrowing on, on the platform uh, receive comp tokens uh, as an incentive to, to utilize the platform. And so that seems, you know, pretty straightforward. But after it launched, a lot of people were talking about it. Why? What happened? I think there was uh, a bit of surprise in terms of the, the overall market cap uh, that was kind of achieved at, um, at that point. So they initially put uh, a, a distribution, um, you know, someone from within the team or someone who's close to the team put a distribution of tokens onto Uniswap. Um, and those tokens were immediately bought up and pushed the price up to a little over $100. Um, the price then uh, over the you know, next sort of two to three days, as people were earning comp and uh, selling it down into the market, uh, dropped down to about $60. But then this morning, uh, when I've woken up to do this interview, I've noticed that um, it's been announced that it's going to be listed on Coinbase. And now the price is up at about $170. So I expect that there's going to be even more craziness over the next uh, week or two as, as that kind of plays out. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that um, people were saying it almost feels um, it's like a little bit reminiscent of the ICO craze because, um, you know, the amount of Ether locked up in it is, I think, maybe about 300 million. um, But the market cap now is definitely over a billion. So, (laughs) yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. The dynamics of play for sure. 
And you said you hadn't foreseen it playing out like this. What did you think going into it and what did you get wrong? I mean, I, I thought that, you know, it would do fairly well, right? I thought the token market cap uh, would be, you know, in the kind of range of like 200 to 500 million initially, right? Um, you know, which would be uh, 20 to $50. Um, so, you know, the fact that it was five to, you know, double to five times higher than that range, uh, you know, at the low end of the range was pretty surprising to me. Um, and, and I think, you know, that was partially due to the fact that there's not much liquidity because people are just starting to earn the token. Um, but I, I think that the big difference in this distribution versus, say, you know, ICOs back in the day is that it wasn't just a bunch of tokens sold to people who were supposedly going to use the protocol. It was tokens that were you know, only essentially distributed to people uh, who were using the protocol. And then there was a little bit of liquidity put on Uniswap. So the price discovery is still going on at the moment. And I think it's going to take a bit of time for that to, to kind of play out. But um, you know, in terms of just the price action, I was very surprised. I think a lot of people were surprised. And one other piece of this is that now the governance of Compound is in the hands of the community. How do you think that's going to go? So I'm one of the participants in that governance process. So I'm someone that you can delegate your comp voting power to. Um, and I think there's two parts of that for me. You know, they're both self-interested. So one is I have uh, a fair amount of value on Compound. Um, so I'm an active lender and borrow on Compound. So, um, you know, when I was given the opportunity to participate in governance, obviously I like the idea of having some level of control, you know, as a community participant. And I think the other thing is, you know, we're all kind of trying to figure out this decentralized governance process, right? And, you know, as part of our synthetics uh, transition to decentralized governance, there's a whole bunch of things that we're testing out. And, you know, in DeFi, the fastest way to learn is just to get in and do things. And so having exposure to, uh, you know, another project and the way that they're approaching this from the outside is quite powerful. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of the reason uh, why I wanted to participate was, you know, to have some measure of control and also to, to kind of you know, be able to uh, to follow along closely as they they work through it. And I think, you know, already we're seeing uh, proposals come out that are trying to you know, more closely align incentives um, within the, uh, the system. So, you know, this comp distribution launched. There's people that are yield farming, which, you know, they're trying to maximize their gains from, from the uh, comp emissions. And I think people are trying to tweak those incentives to get that right, to make sure that we're actually, you know, incentivizing the right behavior and not just incentivizing, uh, you know, people to, to kind of uh, pull as much value out of the system as possible. And when you talk about that yield farming, what are they doing? So they they will put some uh, value into Compound, right? And a lot of this is happening on USDT, which is a bit ironic because it's not the most decentralized asset in the world, right? Uh, but you know they're they're depositing some value into the system, and then they're borrowing USDT because the the borrow cost or the the APR um, on USDT is the highest in Compound, right, at the moment. So to borrow USDT costs about fifteen percent APR, and the way the distribution works is the more interest you pay or the more interest you accrue, uh, the more comp you get. And so a lot of the uh, the kind of comp emissions are going to these USDT farmers, right? Who have like put USDT in, borrowed it, then moved it into another wallet, deposited it again and borrowed it. So you can kind of lever up, right? And, and try and maximize your gains, which is not ideal, right? It's not exactly what we want. We want actual users to be getting the comp tokens because it's it's supposed to be this, you know, community governance process. So on some level, you want to incentivize people to come in who have assets, but you don't want them to, to be kind of uh, gaming the system, I guess. And if that were to continue on too long, would that put the system at risk in any way? 
it doesn't put the system at risk, but it does have some interesting dynamics for the rest of DeFi, I guess, um, because you know the rest of DeFi obviously is very connected. And so there are a number of weird things that happened over the last few days as you know different uh lending pools got drained um and you know people were putting value in and, and we saw a lot of value um you know on uh the curve pool for example uh, uh you know there was there was 25 million dollars worth of uh transactions because people were borrowing and curve pools and um, an amm um so like a, an automatic market maker for stable coins and so people were basically cycling this usdt into usdc through this pool and so there's you know so there's all kinds of weird things and, and effects you know uh, flow on effects from uh from an incentive like this that's so big that's got so much attention and one other thing is um i saw that you took issue with a tweet that Tushar Jane made where he talked about how he didn't see how liquidity mining and DeFi protocols was any different from transaction mining for centralized exchanges. And he basically said that for both, he didn't see how either would help their projects get market share long-term. Um, so for the listeners, can you define liquidity mining and transaction mining and then explain why you disagreed with Tushar? Yeah, so you know the transaction mining thing uh, that kind of started with Fcoin and some of these other centralized exchanges was designed in a, in a similar way. It was designed to create liquidity, right? It was designed to have people that were you know uh, putting liquidity into centralized order books, right? Um, you know, as a means of attracting normal traders, right? Because the more liquidity there is, the you know the better off it is to trade on an exchange. But it wasn't very well controlled. Right. Um, you know, so the the fact that people were just wash trading to try and you know maximize their gains meant that there wasn't really a, a strong kind of alignment, incentive alignment from uh, those those promotions. It just created you know a lot of uh, I guess op- optics, right? Like the the optics looked like there was a lot of volume, but the reality was there wasn't much liquidity coming from that. I think in this case, and this is one of the benefits of DeFi, when you're incentivizing some behavior, you know, the liquidity is genuinely there. You can see it. You can see that you know uh, the assets in Compound went from 100 million to 200 million, you know, over the the course of you know a few days, right? Now those assets are there for people to borrow. Like they actually exist, they're in the protocol, you can borrow them. And, you know, in many of the cases, ignoring the USDT example, uh, the cost of borrowing has gone down, right? Because there's more assets now that, that lenders have uh, deposited into the protocol. So I think with some small tweaks to this incentive program, which is our job as decentralized governors of the system, you know, myself and, and others are, are looking at ways to kind of tweak this mechanism. I think we can ensure that the incentives are aligned such that, you know, it's a, a beneficial uh, sort of program and, and beneficial incentive and all the incentives are aligned and users actually get, you know, a better experience from this. Um, and so I think that's where it kind of deviates, right, is that, you know, you can actually tweak these incentives and the community has control of it, um, you know, to ensure that the incentive alignment is there. All right. So in a moment, we're going to um, talk about what, uh, how this trend could continue and what it means for the future of DeFi. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make the show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. 
In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexit allows you to achieve both of these goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also allows you to earn up to 8% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. Back to my conversation with Kane Warwick. So um, when we saw what happened to the comp token on the first day, you tweeted that you thought seeing it 5x on the first day was the harbinger of a DeFi bull market. Why? I think it shows how much interest there is in the space, right? Um, you know, it, there's a lot of uh, things that you kind of see at the start of a bull market, um, you know, little anomalies, right? Little things that kind of forget to go, oh, that's interesting, right? There was, the, you know, that's not what I was expecting. That was surprising. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're starting to see little, um, you know, uh, blips like this, right? That are kind of indicating that we're getting into a market where there's a lot of attention starting to flow into DeFi. Um, and, you know, crypto has been in this weird sideways movement for a while now. Um, but there is kind of one bright spot, which is DeFi that, you know, has started to get attention, started to get some traction. And so I think the fact that, you know, we're seeing tokens uh, and this resurgence of tokens and, and tokens used as very powerful incentive mechanisms is kind of, you know, the start of this movement, right? It's been going on for a little while, but I think the rest of the market's starting to take notice. And Compound, you know, being such a high profile project, you know, moving in this direction, I think is, is kind of a big deal. So that was, it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, this is interesting. We're starting to see, um, you know, some real attention flow in. Yeah. I happen to look at this. Um, I guess it's a newsletter by Kerman Coley called DeFi weekly. And he said, comp is basically a bank that lives purely in the cloud and took less than 10 people to actually develop. Also the fact that it's a liquid unicorn less than three years is really, really wild to see. The past of raising continual rounds of investment and hoping to go public are over. And yeah, looking, you know, I think Compound raised about $25 million, uh, or at least in its Series A, I guess probably there was maybe a seed round before. A little bit more. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's... <laughs> um, it's, <def> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, there's definitely something there. Something's happening, I guess, is the, is the point, right? Yeah. And I also see you had another tweet storm um, about BTC dominance or what you call the BTC dominance cycle. And um, it was about how Bitcoin flows into what you called alts, I think. So can you summarize your thoughts there? Yeah. So so I think, you know, I'm uh, probably the most bullish person that I know at the moment on this whole thesis of like BTC flowing into Ethereum. Um, so I'm very close with a, a number of projects that are working on this solution. I've been you know actively kind of pushing for this for a while. Um, so, you know, we've been talking to the Keep team um, for TBTC. Um, you know, I talked to some of the people from Bitco around Wrap BTC and, and talked to the REN team, um, you know, as well on, on REN BTC. So I'm across most of the different approaches to, to bringing BTC onto Ethereum. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, there's also Rune as well, ThorChain, uh, which is working on it. So there's a number of people working on this um, solution. And as someone who's kind of a recovering Bitcoin maximalist, uh, I think that it's, you know, I can see how this view of, of Bitcoiners uh, that, you know, Bitcoin should stay and, and not do much and should just be a store of value could get eroded. I can see the path to that. And so, you know, if that starts to happen and, and they, you know, see yield like comp, for example, right? Like you can take your wrapped Bitcoin and you can deposit it into comp, right? Or you can let it sit 
on you know, uh, Poloniex or Kraken or Binance or whatever and not do much, right? You know, if you're not actively trading, it's just sitting on an exchange, maybe it's sitting in cold storage. But now there's a way that you can actually put your Bitcoin to work and you can, you know, bring it onto Ethereum as a tokenized representation of it and you can lend it out or you can, you know, do a whole bunch of things with it. And so I think that there will be this movement of, you know, a significant portion of Bitcoiners realizing that they can actually do something with their Bitcoin and they can leverage it and there's ways to get yield, there's ways to participate in, in other protocols. And I think that that's going to have a huge impact on the overall Ethereum ecosystem and obviously DeFi, right? Because there's just so much value in Bitcoin. You know, there's almost $200 billion worth of Bitcoin floating around. It doesn't take much for that to flow into DeFi to have a huge impact. And we've seen that in Maker. Um, you know, when Maker uh, enabled wrapped Bitcoin, a ton of Bitcoin flow, you know, uh, flowed into that uh, system to, to issue DAI, right? And I think that's just the, the start of it. I think it's going to increase uh, from here. So I'm really excited about that. And I, I think, you know, it's uh, it's something that, um, you know, we need to be watching for this this movement of Bitcoin onto Ethereum. Yeah, I had Matt Luanco on Unchained talking about TBTC, and I agree there is something about the idea of marrying Bitcoin to DeFi that it does make me think that there's going to be something that happens there. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I very much agree. <laughs> and when you wrote that tweet storm, you kind of were talking about how you feel like you're already seeing some of this action happen. And you talked about kind of like which kinds of tokens have benefited. So what are you seeing in that regard? Like which tokens um, are, you know, kind of already starting this trend uh, where you're seeing Bitcoin going into DeFi? Yeah, so I mean, you're you're seeing, you know, the Maker example was a great example, right? Um, and and Compound as well. Um, we're actually launching uh, something with the Curve team, uh, which is that AMM protocol that I mentioned, uh, and the Ren team, where we're going to put uh, SBTC, which is our synthetic Bitcoin, wrapped Bitcoin, and uh, Ren BTC all into uh, an AMM pool, um, which is designed to have a, a ton of liquidity. And so we're hoping that we can get, you know, four or five million dollars worth of Bitcoin into that pool, which will mean that, you know, someone would be able to go from Ren BTC to Wrap BTC or synthetic Bitcoin, et cetera, uh, which should really help with the liquidity across these different protocols, you know, because it's the composability that really makes it, um, you know, work. So you could take your wrapped Bitcoin out of compound, convert it, you know, directly into Bitcoin, have it deposited into an exchange, for example. And I think once that liquid on-ramp and off-ramp becomes just easier and a bit more accessible for Bitcoiners, that's going to be when, you know, at the moment it's still pretty high friction. As that friction is reduced and someone who's got 100 BTC wants to, in a single transaction, get it into the compound and they can, I think that's going to be a big deal. And I think that's when, you know, a lot of the the people with a lot of Bitcoin locked up just sitting on exchanges um, will start to see it kind of flow in. But the impact of that, I guess, uh, from a, a sort of tokens perspective is you've got all these DeFi tokens that you know, some of which have been languishing for years, right? You've got, you know, Lend, KNC, Ren, you know, even SNX to an extent, um, Maker, all of these tokens that have been live for a long time that, you know, over the last six to 12 months have had a bit of a resurgence, right? And again, it's, it's kind of what I, I said earlier, right? It's one of the few bright spots where there's a lot of activity happening. And so a lot of these, you know, kind of layer one chains that don't have much activity going on, we're starting to see value flow out of them and into, um, you know, some of these uh, DeFi protocols and DeFi tokens. And I think that, you know, that has a very uh, powerful kind of compounding effect, um, you know, as that happens and, and you know, uh, the, the prices increase, people get excited and they start looking where, you know, where is this, what's happening? Why is this happening? So I think we're starting to see that. 
Yeah. And so this even goes back to what we were talking about a little bit about um, compounds valuation based on, you know, not that much um, work, I mean, compared to the traditional startup world. And I saw that Tom Shaughnessy of Delphi Digital tweeted that he is seeing what he called a layer one to DeFi trade in full effect. And he said, quote, investors will sell graveyard layer ones for momentum DeFi plays where tokens make sense. And then he also said he was interested to see how VCs would handle this because many of them had already invested quite a bit into different layer one protocols. And he was saying like if they were to invest in DeFi now, that sort of puts them at odds with their previous investments. Um, and then there's also the fact that a lot of these DeFi um, projects are small enough that they don't necessarily need that much venture capital. So what do you think of those thoughts? So I, I think there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of things there. There's a lot of value locked up in projects that are not going anywhere, really, right? If we're if we're honest, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of tokens. If you go through the top hundred tokens, right? There's a lot of dead chains and dead projects that you know don't have much momentum. And then when you're looking through the top hundred and you're looking at you know what's actually happening, uh, which are the projects that are really delivering and there's interesting stuff going on, it's almost invariably a DeFi token. You know, when you know it's some kind of DeFi token, it's it's Maker, it's it's Ren, it's Lend, it's you know all of these different tokens. And I think that you know if you if you add up the total uh, value that's kind of stuck in these older projects that are not you know not super liquid but also not really going anywhere, there's billions of dollars there, right? The total DeFi market cap of actual project tokens is you know maybe 1.5 billion. Right. So, you know, there's there's billions of dollars worth of money locked up in in layer one chains that needs to go somewhere, you know, as this uh, kind of shift happens. And where is it going to go? It's going to go to Ethereum and it's going to go to, you know, some of these DeFi projects is, is, you know, that's Tom's thesis. And I very much agree with it. Um, And I think that, um, you know, it's. Uh, it's very exciting, obviously, you know, for to be in the DeFi space and kind of see this playing out. You know, it's it's what we've been talking about for a couple of years now, and it's finally the rest of the market's catching up. And so, if you were to guess how a future DeFi bull market would play out, um, you know, what are you thinking? Is it all these different factors about BTC coming to DeFi and then the proliferation of stable coins? Like, wh- what factors um, do you think would come into play, and how would that look? I think there's there's some element of like, you know, we haven't yet seen kind of the capitulation moment for uh, a lot of these, um, you know, these people with uh, these theses that they had around like L1 competition with with Ethereum. Right. I think there's still a lot of kind of hope out there that this is going to play out. Um, but, you know, the longer we go, the the less likely that feels right. Um, you know, the less like, like there will obviously be competition and competition's good. And we may see one or two you know, competitive chains to Ethereum getting some level of traction, but there's, you know, 50 or 100 of them, right? Like, they're just not going to survive, and it's going to be very hard for that to happen. And so I think that as you see those projects kind of wind up, right? Now, it's hard to wind up a token. It's not like a company where you just kind of say, okay, we're going to shut our doors and, and you know, uh, and, and wrap it up, right? Tokens just kind of live on as zombie tokens for a long time, right? And, and so I think that at some point, you know, I, I look at something like XRP, right? XRP has a, an $8 billion valuation, and there's a lot of people out there holding XRP that I think are going to be in disbelief when the thing that they've been talking about, which is, you know, the, the remittance rails being taken over by crypto happens, but it happens with stable coins on Ethereum. And I think at some point you have to just capitulate and accept that that didn't work, 
right? So where does that $8 billion worth of XRP go? Where does it flow to? It has to flow into Ethereum and stable coins and other, uh, you know, other projects. So when something like that happens, that's like a tectonic shift in the market, right? You know, that's the, the third largest market cap token that potentially, um, you know, it doesn't have a value proposition anymore, right? Um, and again, a lot of us have been saying it doesn't have a value proposition for a long time, but at some point, reality has to set in and, and that, you know, that's going to, to kind of play out. So that's, again, that's my kind of thesis that I think that we will see the shift in the market. Um, but it's it's coming. It's not here yet. I think we're on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing how, um, you know, this first mover, I mean, it's not even a first mover advantage, but but you're right there. There are a lot of these zombie tokens that have huge market caps and um, <laughs> it's taken a while for other things to catch up. Um, well, anyway, thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, it was great to, great to chat again. Thanks very much for having me. Don't forget to stay tuned for the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Diversify has partnered with Starkware to bring serious traders a speed and security advantage without sacrificing the cornerstones of profitable trading. They enable high-speed UI or API access to deeply liquid order books, instant execution of 9,000 plus trades per second, as well as rapid withdrawal certainty for when you need to move fast. If you're an arbitrage, algorithmic, or day trader, you can capitalize on the best of centralized trading while preserving complete control of your assets 24-7. Want the edge? Head to D-E-V-E-R-S-I-F-I dot com and learn more today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Bolton Book claims that Trump told Treasury Secretary to go after Bitcoin. The Washington Examiner has a tidbit on an excerpt from John Bolton's new book, The Room Where It Happened, that involves Bitcoin. The publication reports that in May 2018, in a conversation about trade with China, President Trump told Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin that instead of negotiating trade, he should, quote, go after Bitcoin for fraud. Mnuchin's response was, if you don't want me in trade, fine, your economic team will execute whatever you want. Last July, Trump made a stance on Bitcoin known, tweeting, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which are not money and whose value is highly volatile and based on thin air. Next line. JP Morgan Chase on Bitcoin. Passed its first stress test, but no safe haven. In a note to investor clients, JP Morgan Chase analysts said that Bitcoin is not uncorrelated to traditional investments such as stocks. They observed, quote, Bitcoin saw severe drops in liquidity around the peak of the crisis in March. But that disruption was cured much faster than other asset classes. They conclude that cryptocurrencies passed their first stress test at this time. However, they made this caveat. Quote, there is little evidence that Bitcoin and others served as a safe haven, i.e. digital gold. Rather, its value appears to have been highly correlated with risky assets like equities. This all likely points to the continued survival of the asset class, but likely still more as a vehicle for speculation than as a medium of exchange or, or store of value. Next headline. Consensus CodeFi to launch Ethereum 2.0 staking service. Consensus CodeFi announced an Ethereum 2.0 staking as a service pilot with Binance, Quobi, Matrixport, Crypto.com, which is a sponsor of my shows, Dharma Capital, and Trustology as participants. The target market for the staking API will be large exchanges, wallet providers, custodians, and crypto hedge funds who can use this as a white label service. Stefan Kulikin, president and CFO of Ether Capital, Corporation tweeted that Ether is, quote, about to become a yielding instrument with annual returns of up to 20%. He further elaborated in a tweet storm, 
Quote, Warren Buffett famously said he'd prefer all the farmland in the U.S. instead of all the gold in the world. Why? Farmland is a productive asset on which you can earn cash flow. Cash is king. Understandably, Buffett doesn't value Bitcoin either. With staking, however, you can turn your cryptocurrency into a productive asset that generates a yield. You're now holding farmland, not gold. However, Stefan warns the yields of 20% would likely occur earlier when there's more risk, and then drop to 2 to 3% as staking becomes more relevant. He concludes, with staking as blockchain's answer to a yield instrument, it's just a matter of time before staking networks like Ethereum get the attention they deserve from traditional finance. Next headline. Reddit holds an Ethereum scaling bake-off. Reddit and the Ethereum Foundation are inviting Ethereum scaling projects to show how their scaling solution can be used to bring Reddit's community points to mainnet, first to support the hundreds of thousands of users of community points, and then later to scale to all of Reddit's 430 million monthly users. They'd like for projects to share their demo in the comments of the post by July 31st, as long as they meet certain requirements around scaling, decentralization, usability, interoperability, and security. Next headline. Quadriga downfall due to fraud, says Ontario Securities Commission. The Ontario Securities Regulator took the unusual step of publishing the findings of its investigation into the collapse of Canadian cryptocurrency exchange Quadriga CX, saying that it, quote, resulted from a fraud committed by Quadriga's co-founder and CEO, Gerald Cotton. The 10-part report details how, by the time it ceased operating, Quadriga owed seven... 6,000 clients $215 million in assets, but only $46 million was recovered to pay out. For a securities regulator report, it's a riveting read, showing how Quadriga did not store clients' crypto assets specifically for them, nor did it store them in secure offline multi-sig wallets, as Cotton claimed. Instead, most assets were held in hot wallets and placed on other crypto asset trading platforms. Even then, many of those were simply being traded and spent by Cotton, with $28 million worth of client assets lost trading on those platforms. But most of all, Cotton traded with Quadrica customers using fake money. 97% of this trading was through an account under the name, the name Chris Marquet, though others were called Scepter Jerry, R2D2, and C3PO. The regulators write, quote, Cotton credited these accounts with fake crypto assets and fake fiat currency through manual adjustments to Quadriga's internal ledger. For example, in 2017 and early 2018, he credited the Chris Marquet account with single deposits of $100 million and $50 million. By 2017, the exchange held 20,000 fake Bitcoins, and Cotton had lost $115 million by trading fake assets and covering those losses with the assets of new clients, effectively running a Ponzi scheme. Although Quadriga touted its high volumes, in reality, Cotton was party to at least 35% of all trades in Bitcoin settled in Canadian dollars on the platform. Plus, he also siphoned $24 million of client funds to himself and his fiancée. In case you missed it, be sure to check out the interview I did with Vanity Fair writer Nathaniel Rich on the downfall of this exchange for the magazine. Next headline. Former CFTC chairman publishes argument that XRP is not a security. Christopher Giancarlo, aka CryptoDad, who is now senior counsel at the New York law firm Wilkie Farn Gallagher, co-authored with a Wilkie colleague a paper titled Cryptocurrencies and U.S. Securities Law, Beyond Bitcoin and Ether. It argues point by point that the cryptocurrency XRP, previously known as Ripples, does not qualify as a security according to the four prongs of the Howey test. However, Ripple, the company, which owns the vast majority of XRP, 
is a client of Wilkie Farn Gallagher, and the paper, quote, relied on certain factual information provided by Ripple in the preparation of this article. Next headline, Bancor Vulnerability Highlights Issues with ERC-27 Tokens. Bancor found a vulnerability in its latest smart contracts deployed on Tuesday, putting $450,000 worth of user funds at risk. Though they were able to white-hat migrate the funds to a safe wallet, blockchain engineer David Michal pointed out that the issue stems from a fundamental design flaw with ERC-20 tokens, since he says, quote, the user makes one transaction to allow the DAP to access their tokens and another to run the transaction. Due to current gas prices, many people just enable limitless transactions so as to do the call approve just once. As he says, but now you've given unlimited control of your funds to another contract. However, he notes, ERC-77, the ERC-777 token standard makes it so that the recipient can never access more tokens than the user sent. The drawback, of course, is that ERC-777 tokens are vulnerable to re-entrancy attacks, which is what happened with LendFMe. But as he says, at least the, these don't put user custodied funds at risk. Great, fun bits. Fred Ursum talks creators in crypto. On a podcast, Fred Ursum, partner at Paradigm, and Blake Robbins, partner at Ludlow Ventures, and Jesse Walden, founder of Variant, discuss what business models are working for creators today and how crypto can change that. They're excited about people tokenizing themselves or an hour of their time and using tokens to get others to promote them. It's worth a listen if you're interested in where this space might go. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Kane and the comp launch, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. And don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the podcast on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.